We've reached the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says That guide us to the straight path, O Allah And you know this topic of guidance is a, a very touchy and sensitive topic to me Because I've seen so many things happen in my life Of which I want to share a couple of stories with you You know of all of the things we take granted in this world I think guidance is the biggest thing that we take for granted You know we often say that you don't know the value of something until you lose it and this is most particular when it comes to guidance that you do not realize how valuable your guidance is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala up and until you lost that guidance and I want to share a couple of stories with you growing up um, I had a pretty difficult childhood in the sense of my relationship with my sister it was a very difficult relationship for me subhanallah you know I remember every time she would bring a friend over it wasn't sufficient that I'd have to hide in the basement, but I'd have to leave the house altogether. You know, I could never meet any of her friends. I was too big of an embarrassment. And what ended up happening was, I'd always end up going to my aunt's and uncle's house. And they had uh, a cousin, or sorry, they had uh, a daughter that was six months younger than me, and she was my cousin. And naturally, since I went to their house so often, we developed almost like a sibling-like relationship in the sense that everything became competitive in nature. So when I would get my report card, my parents, you know, rather than focusing on how I did, they would ask me, how did your cousin do and did you beat her or not? You know, that was the type of relationship that ended up happening. And, um, you know, I had like a, a personal victory because she always beat me in everything. She beat me in school. She had a better computer than me. Got her, uh, her, um, she got a bicycle before me. Everything happened before me, except until when we went for our driver's license. And you know, literally on that day, I was like, I had enough. You know, I'm like, yeah, Allah, she can't get a driver's license before me. It's not right. You know, and I'm making dua to Allah. Literally, I was making dua to Allah. I'm like, oh Allah, please let her fail today. You know, don't let her pass. <laughs> and uh, you know, she comes home, she did her driving exam, and she's all crying. And in the back of the house, I'm like, takbir, Allahu Akbar. <laughs> and you know, that was the type of relationship we had. Obviously, I beat her. I got my driver's license before, alhamdulillah. But that's not the point. Just to exemplify our relationship even further, we were memorizing Quran together and I remember uh, you know we were competing in either finishing Juz Amma or Juz Tabarak I can't remember which Juz it was but I finished first in that like literally by a day only and the day we finished I'm like so did you finish or not and she's like no I didn't finish I'm like ha ha sucker <laughs> you know you suck and that's like the competition we had so just uh, to give you further glimpses I remember that when we went to driving school together you know we walked into class there was no other seat except for a seat next to a girl and you know she already had a seat next to the girl but when i got there there's no other seat except for a girl and she was like so hardcore she was like you know don't sit over there it's not permissible for you to sit next to a girl and um i remember that it's a lot time came and it was time to pray and i'm like i'll just pray when i get, go home and she's like no you have to pray right now before you delay like that you can't delay the salah whatsoever and then i remember we got a bit older you know she wanted to wear hijabab her parents didn't want her to wear jilbab. They were like, this is too much, you're getting too, too religious at this time. So I went, I had to intercede, I argued with her parents to wear jilbab. And eventually she started wearing jilbab. Now, I eventually went to Medina and she went on to continue her secular education. 
I eventually came back and you know the jilbab had come off and she's just wearing hijab a year or two went by even the hijab came off another year went by and the salah had been abandoned altogether not a single salah is being prayed and then you know I speak to her parents and I'm like what's going on what happened you know I, I'm remembering all these days where she's like don't sit next to women don't delay your salah you know we're competing and memorizing Quran and now she's become an individual that doesn't wear the hijab, doesn't wear the jilbab. And in fact, if you try to bring up religion with her whatsoever, you know, she just uh, explodes on you. You know, just goes absolutely ballistic. I remember another example, studying at the Islamic University of Medina. This was a brother who was like four or five years senior to me. He graduated from the faculty of Sharia, the same faculty that I graduated from. And I remember, you know, following up on him, what happened to him after and he went back to the States, that's where he was from, and eventually he left the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala altogether. As a graduate from Sharia, he ended up leaving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala altogether. There's another example that was recently brought to my attention. There's this famous series of books on Aqidah by Shaykh Umar al-Ashqar. In English, we have it in eight volumes. Similarly, you know, this book, it was translated into Spanish as well. And the sister who translated this book into Spanish you know, she spent a good 10 years or so translating this work, a specialist in Aqidah. You know, later on you find out that he, even her, you know, she left the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She no longer believes in God. And you keep seeing examples of this and it's like, subhanAllah, what is going on in this world? These are people who stuck to their deen so strictly and they held on so tightly. Where, where did it go? What happened to them? And that is when you truly realize that guidance is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And like all other blessings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He gives it and He takes it. And this is why guidance is so important to hold on to. So important to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for, because you never know when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to take it away. And the biggest example of this from the Salaf is the example of Abu Bakr radiallahu an. In the first two years of Abu Bakr, when he used to lead the Salah, particularly in Salatul Maghrib, they noticed that in the third rakah of Maghrib, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was taking an excessively long time. That you know, usually the Imam, he's only going to read Surah Al-Fatiha. And that's where he'll stop. But Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he was silently reciting something else and he would start crying. So after several weeks had gone by, the Sahaba asked him, Ya Abu Bakr, what are you reciting? What is it that's making you cry in the third rakah? And you're only reading Surah Al-Fatiha. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he mentions at that time that in this rakah, I start reciting the verse from Surah Al-Imran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Rabbana la qulubana ba'da idh That, oh Allah, do not deviate our hearts after you have, you know, guided it. You look at the example of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, that even in his deathbed, his very last words was a dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that, oh Allah, let me die as a Muslim. The very last words uh, he made to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala were, oh Allah, let me die as a Muslim. So you see the example of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and how important it was for him to always stay on the path to guidance. Because in this world, it protects you from humiliation and disgrace and it is a source of happiness and tranquility. And in the hereafter, this guidance is the reason for you entering paradise. This guidance is the reason for you entering paradise. So this is just a small introduction into this dua that we make in, 17, in our salahs 17 times a day. So that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always guides us. So now, let us take a look at a couple of things in this verse. The very first thing we realize in this verse is that this is the first time in the verse that we are now supplicating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first three verses, it's factual information for us. 
The second, the fourth verse, we're stating something to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're telling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you alone we worship and you alone we seek help from. But now when we get to Ihdina Sirat al-Mustaqeem, you notice that this is the first time we're supplicating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we, we learn from this is the etiquettes of supplicating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The etiquettes of making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as narrated in Abu Dawud, he says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam heard a man supplicating in prayer. He did not glorify Allah, nor did he invoke blessings on the Prophet. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, he has made dua in haste. He then called him and said to him, or to those around him, if any of you supplicates, he should commence by glorifying his Lord and praising him. He should then invoke peace and blessings on the Prophet, and thereafter he should supplicate to Allah for anything that he wishes. So this is what you learn from this uh, surah over here. That at the beginning you start off by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is from the etiquettes of making dua. That you always start off by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then asking what you want to ask for. A second thing you learn from this verse over here. Is that the command, ihdina. It is in the imperative form. What does this mean? That when you look at the Arabic language, every verb will take one of three forms. It will either take the past, it will take the present, or it will take the imperative. What does this mean? So for example, you take the verb to go. So the past tense of the verb to go, Jazakallah khair. <coughs> the past tense of the verb <coughs> to go <coughs> is dhahaba. And this is the past tense. So he went would be dhahaba. Then the present tense is yadhabu. So he is currently going. And then the imperative is a command, idhab. So he, you command a person, go, and that person will go thereafter. Similarly, in this verse, what you see is the imperative. That we are saying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ihdina. Ihdina means guide us. So it's not past, it's not present, but it's the imperative, it is a command. Now, you'll notice that in the Arabic language, the command has two forms. So the command, when it comes from a higher authority, it means it is something that needs to be done. So when, you, when a parent tells you take out the garbage, it means you have to take out the garbage. When Allah tells us to pray, it means we have to pray. Because it's coming from a higher authority. But now what if it's coming from the lower level? What if, what if it's coming from the lower authority? What, is coming, what if it's coming from those who are subjugated? Those who are the quote-unquote servants or those who are in servitude? Then what we understand from the imperative over here is the need of desperation. That you, the only time someone who is in a lower authority will command someone who is in a higher authority when it's absolute desperation. And this is what the surah is showing us. That it is such an absolute state of desperation that we are in need of guidance. That is why we use the imperative towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even though the regular case scenario is that you would not use the imperative towards a higher authority. But it is used over here because it is an absolute state of desperation to seek guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now continuing with the etiquettes of dua. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he mentions this verse in Al-Dawa, the sickness and the cure, a book that he has. And he talks about the etiquettes of dua. And I want to expand on that a little bit because this is what this verse is there to show us. So Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he goes on to say, When the servant combines in his supplications, presence of the heart and it being attentive, and devoting itself solely to Allah, sincerely asking Him for the desired matter, doing so at one of the six times when the supplication is more likely to, likely to be answered, and these being the last third of the night, 
at the time of the Adhan, between the Adhan and the Iqamah, at the end of the prescribed prayers, from the time the Imam ascends the pulpit to the time the prayer is finished on the day of Jum'ah, and the last hour, uh, the last hour after the prayer of Asr on the day of Jum'ah. Along this, the servant appends fear and reverence in his heart, beseeching his Lord in a state of humility and submissiveness. He faces the Qibla and is in a state of purity. He raises his hands to Allah and begins by praising and extolling Him. Then he invokes peace and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad He proceeds mentioning his need by seeking forgiveness from Allah. And then he earnestly and sincerely makes his request as one who is needy and impoverished, supplicating to him out of hope and fear. He seeks the means of getting close to him by mentioning his names and attributes and making the religion sincerely for him alone. Before making supplication, he gives in charity. If all this is done, then the supplication will never be rejected, especially if the servant employs the supplications that the Messenger of Allah informed us would be accepted, or if his supplication included the greatest name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or if his supplication included the greatest name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let us look at the etiquettes of dua that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentions. So the first thing he mentions is the attentiveness of the heart. That when you're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the heart needs to be attentive. You'll notice that this is where a lot of us go wrong. That salah will finish, we'll raise our hands, we'll make dua, but our hearts really aren't into it. We're thinking about matters of the dunya, we're thinking about other problems that we have, we're thinking about what we're going to be doing, but the heart is not attentive in making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the first thing. The heart needs to be attentive. Number two, when you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you should try to seek the times where dua is actually accepted. Try to seek the times where dua is actually accepted. And Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he mentions six times over here. He mentions six times over here. The first of them is in the last third of the night. The first of them is in the last third of the night. The second of them is after the Adhan. After the Adhan, that when you make dua right after the Adhan, you repeat as the Mu'adhan says, and then you make dua, it is a time when the dua is answered. Number three, between the Adhan and the Iqamah. Between the Adhan and the Iqamah. Number four, at the end of prescribed prayers. So you've just prayed a Fard Salah. And before you say Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, at that time you make the dua. Not after the salam, but before the salam. Then from the time the Imam ascends the pulpit to the time when the salah finishes. So this means that between the two khutbas that the Imam makes on the day of Jum'ah is a time when dua is answered. If the Imam leaves a break between finishing the khutbah and starting the salah, that is a time when dua is answered as well. Then the last time he mentions is the last hour on the day of Friday. So the scholars differed that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said that on the day of Friday is a time that if you were to make dua during that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would answer that supplication. The vast majority of scholars of hadith, they went to the opinion that this was just the last hour before Salat al-Maghrib. So on the day of Friday, before Salatul Maghrib, you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is a time when supplications are answered. Can you guys think of any other times when duas are answered? Any other times? Go ahead. Before breaking your fast. So while a person is fasting, his dua is answered. Directly related to that 
is that when the person is breaking his fast, then dua is answered at that time as well. While in sujood. Good point. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that the closest a slave is to his Lord is when he is making sajda. So that is a good time to make dua, but it's not necessarily a time where supplications are guaranteed to be accepted. But that was a good point. Go ahead. While traveling. So the dua of the musafir is mustajab. Excellent. During rain. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to make dua during It is a blessed time to do so. Allahu Alam if it's dua mustajab, but it's definitely a blessed time to do so. Can we think of something else? Dua al-Madhlum. Ahsant. So the dua of the person who is being oppressed. The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he tells us that there's no barrier between the one who is oppressed and his dua to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So these are other times when duas are accepted. You want to say another one? When you wake up, yeah, we mentioned the last third of the night already. That was the very first one we mentioned. It's the last third of the night. Go ahead, last one. When you're visiting someone sick, no, there's no dua that's answered at that time. It's a very virtuous deed to do, it's a very good deed to do, but there's no particular dua that's answered at that time. But what you can do is, after you're done visiting the sick, and it's sincerely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, Oh Allah, I did this good deed for your sake, so please accept my dua. This is a form of tawassul which is permissible, which we'll get to bi ta'ala. So the second thing he mentions is that you make dua during the accepted times, uh, periods of time. The third thing he mentions is that uh, you face the qibla when making dua. So you face the qibla when making dua. Number four, he mentions that you be in a state of purity. He mentions you be in a state of purity. So you are in a state of wudu while making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number five, that you raise your hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You raise your hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now generally speaking, when the issue of raising the hands comes, you'll see that there's a lot of interpretations in terms of how should one raise their hands. Should they do so like this? Should they do so like this? How should they do it? From the authentic narrations of the Prophet wasallam, it is narrated that when the Messenger of Allah wasallam used to make dua for istisqa, he would raise his hands up so high that you could see the whiteness of his armpits. You could see the whiteness of his armpits. So the scholars derive from this that the greater um, the you know, level of desperation that you show towards Allah, the better it is. So it's not really significant, do you raise your hands high or low? But what is important is that you're showing a level of desperation and your need towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the next thing is that you praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is number six if I'm not mistaken, right? For those of you keeping notes, which number are we at? You're lost, where are we? You are, we're at number six. So number six, is that you praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number seven, is that you send salah and salam upon the Messenger of Allah. That you send salah and salam upon the Messenger of Allah. And then the last thing that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah he mentions, is that you make tawassul with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You make tawassul with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this concept of tawassul, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He commands us with this in Surah Al-Ma'idah. He commands us, وَابْتَغُوا إِلَيْهِ الْوَسِيلَةِ That seek a means of closeness, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And tawassul which is legislated is in four types. Tawassul which is legislated is in four types. Number one, that you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by His names and attributes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in Surah Al-A'raf, وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى فَدُعُهُ بِهَا That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the beautiful names, so call Him by them. 
So how does this work? Like we've mentioned in the past before, a person who's asking for risk, he uses the name Ar-Razak. The person who's asking for forgiveness, he calls upon Al-Tawwab uh, and uh, Al-Ghaffar and Al-Ghafur. That, that is how you use the names of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala in making dua. The second form of tawassul that is permissible is by using your good deeds, by using your good deeds. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, he mentions the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam where three men were stuck in a cave. And they said that we will not get out of this cave up and until we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by the good deeds we have done, by the good deeds we have done. So the first person he made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Oh Allah, I did not feed my family before I fed my parents. And one day I went out and I was delayed in returning back and my parents had gone to sleep. And I had my children crying at my feet, but I waited till my parents awoke and then I fed them first and then I fed my children. If I did this for your sake and your sake alone, then alleviate this trial from us. So the rock moved a little bit, but they still weren't able to escape. The second man, he says that, Oh Allah, there was a cousin of mine who was the most beloved of people. He says, That I used to love her the most it is physically possible for a man to love a woman. And one time she came in a state of desperation. She needed money. So I said to her, I will give you this money if you seclude yourself with me. And then this woman, she reminded this man that if you want to do this, do this properly, meaning get married to me. So she said, fear Allah, that fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and do this properly. So I left the money with her and I ran away. Oh Allah, if I did this out of fear of you and sincerely for your sake, then help us in this predicament. The rock moved a little bit, but they still weren't able to escape. And the third and last one, and this is actually my, my favorite one, because it's, uh, you know, you can imagine this scenario. That the third man, he says that, Oh Allah, one day I had hired a group of workers and I'd paid them, all of them, their wages, except for one man, he disappeared. So I took this man's wages and I invested it. And then after many months, this man comes back and he says, give me my due right. So I said to him, everything that you see, and you can imagine there's like a valley of sheep, a valley of camels, you know, orchards of trees with fruits and dates and all that stuff. He says, everything that you see, it belongs to you. And this worker, he tells the man that don't make fun of me. Look, I know I'm poor, I know I'm miskin, but don't make fun of me. And the man says, I'm not making fun of you. Genuinely, all of this belongs to you. So then the man who's saying this, he says he took everything. He took everything and he didn't leave a single sheep behind. Meaning that you would have thought that I've done so much good for you. At least you'd leave one sheep behind for me. He didn't even do that. So he said, oh Allah, if I did this for your sake and your sake alone, help us in our predicament. And they were then able to escape from the cave. So this shows us the permissibility of making tawassul through your righteous deeds. And that is why our, our predecessors, they encouraged us that you know you're going to be in a state of predicament. You know Allah is going to test you. So before that test comes, incur your good deeds that you do sincerely that no one else knows about. So that when that trial and tribulation comes, you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through your good deeds and then He helps you out in that situation. So it is very important that in times of prosperity, in times of ease, in times of goodness, you do good deeds sincerely for the sake of Allah so that when the difficult times come, you can make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through those deeds. The third type of tawassul that is permissible is the dua of the righteous person. The dua of the righteous person. And Sahih Muslim, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he commanded Umar radiallahu an 
He said that when you go for Hajj, you will see a man who is extremely righteous. He was known for his righteousness towards his mother, actually, obedience to his mother. And that is why Allah used to answer his du'as. So the Prophet told Umar, when you see this man, ask him to make du'a for you and du'a for your forgiveness. And then Umar did so. And this man was Uwais al-Qarni, uh, rahimahullah. He was a man who lived during the time of the companions, but he never actually met the Prophet So he doesn't have the honor of being called a companion, even though he lived during their time. Even though he lived during their time. And for those of you who just want a technical term, in the science of hadith, this individual is known as a mukhadram. He is known as Mukhadram, someone who lived during the time of the Prophet but never actually got to see the Prophet So he doesn't have the status or honor of a companion, even though he lived during their time. And that was always Al-Qarni. Likewise, the uh, example of Al-Abbas, that Umar anhu, in that year that rain didn't come down, he went to Al-Abbas and he told Al-Abbas, he said, we used to make dua through the Prophet when he was alive. But now that he has passed away, we're asking you to make dua for istisqa, dua for rain. Then the uh, Abbas made dua and rain came down, and rain came down. So this shows us that you should ask a righteous person to make dua for you. You'll notice that there's a misconception in our community that every time you see someone, just a general person, you'll say, make dua for me. Now, you know, particularly in the uh, Indian, sub-Indian, sub uh, What's the word I'm looking for? The subcontinent culture and tradition that when you leave a, a gathering, you tell the people, Dua me yadrakna, that you know, remember us in your prayers. This is something that isn't Islamic, it's not Islamic. But rather, it is only the righteous person, someone that you know them to be righteous, that you should ask them to make dua for you. So you shouldn't, you know, waste that. Rather, it is better that you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yourself, rather than giving, uh, telling every individual to make dua for you. That is the third type. And then the fourth type of uh, tawassul that is permissible is by mentioning one's weakness. By mentioning one's weakness. So you'll notice the dua of Zakariyah, the dua of Zakariyah, that he complained to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, Oh Allah, I have become old and aged and I have become feeble. And my wife has become, you know, she's unable to bear children. She's unable to bear children. And through mentioning this, they made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant them a child, and Allah granted them a child. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he actually tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves to see the broken state in his slave when he's making dua to him. So this shows how perfect and complete and self-sufficient Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, and how weak and desperate and in need the slave is of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are the four types of tawassul that are permissible in making dua. And that is the last thing that Ibn al-Qayyim mentions from the etiquettes of making dua. From the etiquettes of making dua. Now in this verse, we make the dua, Ihdina sirat al-mustaqim. Hidayah. In the Arabic language and in Islam, hidayah is of two types. There are two types of guidance. So the guidance that is considered the first types is the guidance where you just indicate something. So for example, someone asks you, can you tell me where you know, Deerfoot Trail is? So you tell them, make a right, make a left, and you'll be at Deerfoot Trail. This is a form of guidance. And this is something that each and every individual can do. Each and every individual can do this. You know, as long as you have that information, as long as you have that knowledge, you're able to give someone direction. And this direction is not binding. Is not binding. This person can either choose to accept it or they can choose to reject it. Or they can choose to reject it. 
The second type of guidance is a guidance that is purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He guides the heart of the individual towards that which is best for him. He guides the heart of the individual towards that which is best for him. And when we are making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ihdina sirat al-mustaqeem, it is the second type of hidayah, the second type of guidance that we are actually asking for. And you'll notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He actually um, acknowledges, acknowledges both for the Prophet sallallahu so in one verse, he tells the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِنَّكَ لَتَحْدِي إِلَى سِرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ This is Surah Shura, Surah number 42, verse 52. He says that, O oh, you Messenger of Allah, indeed you are a guide to the straight path. Indeed you are a guide to the straight path. And this is referring to the first type of guidance. This is referring to the first type of guidance. That in the example of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, those of us who choose to follow it, then they will be following the best of examples. They will be following the right path. And then you'll notice that in the second type, a type of guidance that is specific from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he tells him, إِنَّكَ لَا تَحْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتْ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَحْدِي مَنْ That he tells the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that you, O Messenger of Allah, do not guide those whom you love. But rather it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who guides whom he pleases. So this shows us that there is a type of guidance that is purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is in Surah Qasr, Surah number 28, verse 56. Surah number 28, verse 56. <clears throat> now generally speaking, the scholars of tafsir, these are the two types of guidance that they always mention. Ibn al-Qaim rahimahullah, he actually mentions a third type of guidance. He actually mentions a third type of guidance. And he says that if you were to look at the wordings of this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he doesn't stop as at saying ihdina, that oh Allah guide us. But rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us to say ihdina sirat al-mustaqeem, that guide us to the straight path. And that on the day of judgment, there is a bridge that we will be crossing that is as sirat as well. There is a bridge that we, are, that we will be crossing that is called as sirat as well. So I want to share with you what Ibn al-Qaim rahimahullah <coughs> states. He goes on to say, <coughs> and that is guidance on the day of judgment along the path to paradise. This being the bridge leading to it. So the one who is guided in this life to the straight path will be guided to the straight path in the hereafter that leads to his paradise. His firmness on the path that day will be dependent on how firmly he trod the straight path in this life. So Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he mentions that the third type of guidance is that the more you seek out guidance in this world, then the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide you in the hereafter. So now this sirat that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah is talking about, I want you to imagine this. This is a bridge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. And this bridge, it is as thin as an eyelash. It is as thin as an eyelash. If you were to pull just one hair out, you will see how thin it actually is. In fact, most of you probably cannot even see it from where you're sitting right now. But there's actually a hair follicle in my hand. That is how thin that bridge is. The Messenger of Allah tells us, it is as sharp as a sword. So think about the sharpest knife that you have in your house, that if you were to just slightly graze it, it would cut your hand. That is the state of the sirat. Then to add on top of that, there's no light whatsoever. It is absolute pitch dark. And then to make matters even worse, the fourth thing, 
is that underneath you are the valleys of the hellfire. Underneath you are the valleys of the hellfire. Yarhamukallah. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, tells us that there are a group of people that will run across this sirat. There will be a group of people that will jog, a group of people that will walk, a group of people that will crawl across the sirat. And this will be dependent on how much they stuck to guidance in this life. How much they stuck to guidance in this life. So those people who clinged to guidance, they always sought guidance in all of their affairs, they will hastingly cross this bridge. But those people who took it in jest, took it in, in, uh, in waste, then these people, they will either struggle to get across or they may even, you know, fall into the hellfire. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all. The last thing I'll mention about the Sirat is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He will guide, He will grant a light to the believers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in Surah Al-Tahreen that the believers on the Day of Judgment, they'll make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They'll say, Rabbana that O oh Allah complete and perfect our light for us. The scholars interpreted this verse that the light that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide and grant at that time is the light of a salah. And this is why the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he says in another hadith, as-salatu nur, that the salah is a light. The light that it is referring to is that the people who stuck to their salah, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment, he will grant them a light and the strength of that light will purely be based upon how diligent an individual was with their salah. So if they prayed on time, if they prayed with khushu'a, if they made sure they, you know, they did it properly according to the sunnah of the Prophet the more light they will have. And that is why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he commanded us as well. He said, complete the deficiencies in your salah with your sunnah and nawafil prayers. Meaning that obviously from time to time, you will be distracted. You will you know, not be able to focus. This is normal. Everyone is tested by this. So he said, make up those deficiencies in your salah by praying the sunnah and nawafil prayers. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may recompensate you for those deficiencies that you had. And thus that light may be even more perfected on the day of judgment. That the light may be even more perfected on the day of judgment. Another linguistic point I want to mention is that in this verse we say ihdina sirat al-mustaqim that if you were to look at it ihdina is guide us and then you have a sirat which is the, the path al-mustaqim the straight path but you'll never see uh, the I guess the conjunction over here you don't see in the Arabic language guide us to the straight path or guide us upon the straight path so you don't actually say ihdina ila as-sirat al-mustaqim or you don't say ihdina ala as-sirat al-mustaqim or ihdina li as-sirat al-mustaqim that conjunction that prefix it is missing and ibn al-qayyim rahimahullah he teaches us the, the the reason why this is actually happening is that had a person said guide us to the straight path it would have said it would would have implied guide us to that path and for that is our objective guide us to that path because it is an objective. Ila means that you're going towards something. So that is your objective. The straight path is your objective. And had you said, Ihdina li asirat al-mustaqim, it would have implied that you guide us to that path, but it is optional for us if we're going to follow that path or not. And the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left it out with any, without any prefix uh, whatsoever is to show us is that not only is this an objective, but we also want to be uh, you know, granted the tawfiq to follow this path. 
So the reason why there's no prefix mentioned before the straight path is because we're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only should you guide us to the straight path, but also grant us the tawfiq to follow it as well. Grant us the tawfiq to follow it as well. And this is a linguistic benefit that you find that bithnillahi ta'ala for when you study you know, the Arabic language, you'll come to appreciate bithnillahi ta'ala. Now this concept of the sirat al-mustaqim. What exactly is the sirat al-mustaqim? If you were to look into the books of tafsir, you will see that amongst the salaf, amongst the predecessors, there were seven different opinions in terms of what the sirat al-mustaqim actually is. Seven different opinions. The first of them is stated by Ali ibn Abi Talib and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And they said the straight path is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The straight path is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second opinion is that of Abdullah ibn Abbas. It is attributed to Abdullah ibn Mas'ud as well. Ad-Dahaq and others. And they said that the straight path is Islam. The straight path is Islam. The third opinion is that the Sirat al-Mustaqim is the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which no other religion will be accepted. Number four, it is the Prophet and the two Khalifas. It is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the first two Khalifas, Abu Bakr and Umar. This was the opinion of one of the students of Ibn Abbas by the name of Abu Aliya. And this was the opinion of, an, of Al-Hasan al-Basri, uh, uh, rahimahullah. Number five, it is the truth. So when you're saying, Ahdina al-Sirat al-Mustaqim, you're saying, oh Allah, guide us to the truth. This was the opinion of Mujahid, who was a student of Ibn Abbas. Number six, the path to paradise, that oh Allah, guide, grant, guide us to the path of paradise. This was the opinion of Sa'id ibn Jubair. And the seventh and last opinion, it is the way of the Prophet And this was said by one of the early scholars of uh, hadith by the name of Bakr bin Abdullah al-Muzani. Bakr bin Abdullah al-Muzani. He said it is the way of the Prophet So these are the seven, I guess, ways they interpreted the Sirat al-Mustaqim. That when they defined the Sirat al-Mustaqim, they said it included these seven things. It included these seven things. It is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Islam, it is the religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept. It is the prophet and the two khulafa. It is the truth. It is the path to paradise. And it is the way of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself. It is the way of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself. I want to mention two last things bidnillahi ta'ala. Uh, and that is what Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he mentions about the sirat al-mustaqim. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he talks about the sirat al-mustaqim and he goes on to say, we will, expand, we will expound upon the straight path in a succinct manner for the people have explained it in various ways. All of them revolving around one essential fact. The straight path is the path of Allah which He has put in place to lead mankind to Him. There is no path to Him other than this one which He appointed upon the tongues of the messengers. It is to single Him out for worship and to single out His messengers alone for obedience. Therefore, none should commit shirk in his worship, just as none should commit shirk in following of his messenger. One should purify his tawheed and purify his following of the messenger. This is the full import of the testification that none has the right to be worshipped uh, except Allah and Muhammad is his messenger of Allah. All of the various explanations given to the straight path fall under these two principles. You must love him with all your heart. You must try to please him to the utmost of your ability. There should not be any area of your heart except that it is overflowing with love for him and you should have no desire except to please him. 
The first point is realized through actualizing none has the right to be worshipped except Allah. And the second point is realized through the actualization of Muhammad is the Messenger of Allah This is guidance and the religion of truth. And this is knowing the truth and acting upon it. This is in turn is knowing, that, uh, is knowing what he sent his messenger with and living by it. All definitions revolve around this essential con concept. Sahal bin Abdullah said, stick to the narrations and the sunnah. For I fear that soon will come a time that when the Prophet ﷺ and the importance of following him in everything is mentioned, the people would censure the person who says this, cause others to flee from him and disassociate themselves from him, humiliate him and disgrace him. So Ibn al-Qayyim he summarizes the Sirat al-Mustaqim with two concepts. The two concepts he mentions is purifying your ibadah purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the second concept is following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Meaning that you will not unrestrictedly obey any of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except for the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this is further seen in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, narrated in At-Tirmidhi where the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Allah has set forth the following as a parable. There is a road that leads to the destination. On either side of this road is a wall in which there are open doors which, with, with curtains hanging on them. From the remote of the road, a voice calls, proceed to the straight path and do not turn aside. Whenever someone intends to lift the curtain from the door, another voice calls from above, beware, do not lift the curtain, otherwise you will be lured inside. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, explained the parable by saying that this is the, tr the straight path is Islam. The walls are the limits imposed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The open doors are things that, are, that Allah has prohibited. The voice which calls from the end of the road is the Quran. And the voice which calls from above is Allah's monitor in the heart of every believer. In the heart of every believer. So now understand this parable exactly. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he said that the Sirat al-Mustaqeem, it is a straight path. And this straight path, it has branches leading off towards it. And these branches, they're closed off by walls, meaning that you can't surpass them. There's a wall that's blocking it off. But there is a curtain inside of these walls. There is a curtain inside of these walls. So an individual who deviates from the straight path and he goes towards these walls, he will lift up this curtain and he will be alert. He will be alert. And then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that there's two voices that call out. Whenever someone intends to lift a curtain from the door, another voice calls out from above, beware, do not lift this curtain, otherwise you will be lured inside. And then there's another voice that says, do not deviate from the straight path. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said that these two voices are the natural, you know, pure heart. That the pure heart will tell you what is good for you and will tell you what is bad for you. So whenever your heart feels a state of discomfort, this is your heart telling you that you're doing something wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. And then the second voice is the voice of the Qur'an. That the Qur'an tells us what is good for us and what is bad for us. Then those walls that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set up, those are the boundaries of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that as long as you're staying within those walls, you're in, within the realms of permissibility. But the second you transgress those walls, then you, you succumb yourself to desires which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited. So stay with inside those boundaries. Stay with inside those boundaries. 
And then one last point I'll mention over here is that from the above verse, we also learn that the straight path is one path and not many. Indeed, anything that deviates from it is to be regarded as misguidance. And that is why the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is told in Surah Al-An'am. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala tells the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Surah Al-An'am, Surah number 6, verse 153. And verily this is my straight path, so follow it. And do not follow the other paths, for they will separate you from this path. This has been ordained for you, that you may become pious. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ so here we learn that the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only one path. It is not multiple paths. There are multiple paths towards doing good deeds. But in terms of those deeds being accepted, then there's only one path that leads to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us with. And that is what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was upon. And that is why in another narration, when the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam drew that straight line, he said that this is the Sirat al-Mustaqim. This is the straight path. So the companions asked him, Ya Rasulullah, who is this straight path? Or who are the people of this straight path? And the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told them, That that which I am upon, and that which my companions are upon. So when you're looking for the straight path, then always look for what would the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam do in this situation? What would his companions عنهم, agree to at this point? And that will be the straight path. That will be the straight path. The last thing uh, I'll mention over here to conclude with Allah Ta'ala is that this verse goes on to say, this is actually the next verse, اِحْدِنَا الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ And then it continues, صِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ The path of those whom you have favored. The path of those whom you have favored. So we notice over here that the straight path is also the path of those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has favored. So now we want to figure out who are the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually has favored. Who are the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually has favored. And the answer to this is found in Surah An-Nisa verse 69. Surah An-Nisa verse 69. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in this verse, وَمَن يُطِعِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَأُولَٰئِكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّبِيِّينَ وَالصِّدِّقِينَ وَالشُّهَدَاءِ وَالصَّالِحِينَ وَحَسُنَ أُولَٰئِكَ رَفِيقًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends in this verse that whoever obeys the Messenger of Allah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then he will be in the company of the following four categories of people. The following four categories of people. فَأُولَٰئِكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّبِيِّينَ The Prophets وَالصِّدِّقِينَ The sincerely truthful ones. The sincerely truthful ones. وَالشُّهَدَاءِ The martyrs. وَالصَّالِحِينَ And the righteous. And the righteous. So the Prophets, these are known. These are, this includes the Prophets and the Messengers. This includes the Nabi and the Rasul. The Nabi and the Rasul. Now what is the difference between the Nabi and the Rasul? The Nabi is anyone that was given uh, revelation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first of them was Adam alayhi salam. The first of them was Adam alayhi salam. Then the Rasul is anyone who was given revelation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but his people turned against him. His people turned against him. So the first Nabi was Adam, and the first Rasul was Nuh alayhi salam. The first Rasul was Nuh alayhi salam. And these are the words of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he will be in the company of all of the Prophets and all of the Messengers. Then As-Siddiqeen. As-Siddiqoon, these are the people who are hasty in affirming the truth. 
that any time the truth comes to them, they are hasty in affirming it. From that which is authentically narrated, we know that this title was given to two individuals. We know that this title was given to two individuals. And if you can tell me who those two individuals are, I'll actually give you my set of notes. I have a separate set of notes. I'll give this to you, inshallah. But you need to give me both of them. I don't want just one. I need both of them, bismillahi ta'ala. Sorry? Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an. And who is the second? Khadija. La. Don't shout out. I need both of them at the same time. Go ahead. Incorrect. Go ahead. La. Incorrect. Go ahead. Incorrect. I'll give you a hint. The second individual is not a Sahabi. The second individual is not a Sahabi. Incorrect. Incorrect. Just to tell you why, obviously the Prophet would be an obvious answer, but we don't give him the title of Siddiq because he has a higher level of being a Nabi and a Rasul. So while he could correct, he wasn't given that title because he was a Nabi and a Rasul. Go ahead. I said he wasn't a Sahabi. He wasn't a Sahabi. The second person was not a Sahabi. Go ahead. Okay. Ahsant. That is correct. So you can take this later on, inshallah. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the answer. The first of them is Maryam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran about Maryam, وَكَانَ أُمُّهُ Siddiqa. That indeed her, his mother, the mother of Isa salam, was a Siddiqa, someone who sincerely affirmed the truth. Then the second time this title is given to anyone was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, particularly when the incident of Isra wal Miraj happened. They said that, do you know what your friend has said now? He said that he traveled to Jerusalem in one night. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhum, he said to them that if he said it, then it must be true. If he said it, then it must be true. And this is when he was given the title of a Siddiq. So in our history, these are the two people that we know of that were given the title of a Siddiq. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So that is the second category of people whom Allah has favored. Then the third category of people is the Shuhada. The third category of people is Shuhada. Now when we talk about Shuhada, when we talk about martyrs in Islam, this has a general meaning and it has a specific meaning. The specific meaning is that someone who died in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the battlefield. Someone who died in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the battlefield. And this is the highest level of shahada. This is the highest level of shahada. Um, yeah, this is the highest level of shahada. Then the general concept of uh, shahada or the general meaning of the shaheed is anyone who died struggling. Anyone who died struggling. So the Messenger of Allah says that whoever dies while drowning is a shaheed. Someone who dies of uh, stomach cancer, colon cancer, or intestinal cancer is a shaheed. Someone who dies while defending his house or his family is a shaheed. And you'll notice that other people, they're mentioned as shuhada. So anyone who's, who dies in a state of struggling is considered a shaheed. So this encompasses all of those people. This encompasses all of those people. And then the last category, is a salihin, the general righteous people. And these are people who did extra amounts of ibadah, extra amounts of ibadah above that was regular, above that was regular. One last thing I'll mention about this is that the scholars of tafsir, they asked the question, 
So where would the scholars of Islam fall into this? Where would the scholars of Islam fall into this? Would they follow under the Anbiya and the Rusul because they were the inheritors of the Prophets? Would they follow under the Siddiqun because they're the first ones to affirm the truth and teach it to the people? Would they follow under the martyrs because their whole life is a struggle to learn and to teach? Or would they fall, uh, fall under the, the last one which is, you know, they did excessive ibadah or extra ibadah. And the answer to this question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best is that the scholar of Islam and the student of knowledge, he would fall under all four categories. And that is why the student of knowledge and the scholar, he has the best job because he has the opportunity to fall under all four of these categories. Now, the last, last thing I mentioned, I know I've been saying this a lot, but I just keep remembering different things. Sheikh uh, Muhammad Amin al-Shamqiti, he's uh, a scholar that passed away, rahimahullah. He was of the same generation of Sheikh Ibn Baz and Sheikh Albani, rahimahullah, maybe even a bit more senior to them. He's written a book of tafsir called Adwa'ul Bayad. And the point of this book of tafsir is to explain the Quran with the Quran. So he uses the Quran to explain the Quran. So he'll mention a verse, then he'll bring other verses to explain this verse. Now when he comes to this particular verse, when he comes to this particular verse, he mentions something very interesting. I've mentioned it in some of my lectures before. But he uses this verse to prove the truthfulness of the Khilafah of Abu Bakr radiallahu an. He uses this to prove the truthfulness of the Khilafah of Abu Bakr radiallahu an. Meaning that through this verse, al-Mustaqim, alayhim, he uses this verse to prove that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was most deserving to become Khalifa. How did he do this? The way he did this was exactly what I just explained to you. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he shows us the rank of people in terms of whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has favored. Starting off with the prophets, then the siddiqun, then the shuhada, and the salihun. These are the four categories. So after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, who is most deserving to become their leader? It is the next person or the group of categories of people. Either the Siddiqun, either the Shuhada, or the Salihun. Now the Shuhada obviously cannot be the next leader because he's already passed away. So it leaves you with the Siddiqun and the Salihun. So the, he said that when Allah ﷻ mentions an order, he mentions this order because there's a virtue over the previous thing, of the previous thing, over the latter. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has preferred and given virtue to the Siddiqun over the Salihun. And therefore the Siddiqun should be given precedence uh, or preference. And that is why after when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, this ayah was a proof that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was most deserving to be Khalifa. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had preferred people in this category or had preferred people in these rankings. The Prophets and Messengers, then the Siddiqun, and then the Shuhada, and then the Salihun. Do you guys understand that last point? Everyone understood it? Alhamdulillah. So we'll conclude with that inshaAllah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. And we will take five questions bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Five questions. Go ahead. Uh, Okay. Either in, in Benya or next, next right. So all the things will be right. Uh, so how do you reconcile it to hadith? Ahsant. So the brother's question was that we mentioned nine times where the du'as are answered, but another hadith of the Prophet he says that all of our du'as are answered in one of three ways. All of our du'as are answered in one of three ways. 
Either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us what we want when we want, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala delays it for a time when it is better for us. Or number three, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He doesn't give us what, he, what we want, but He averts an equal amount of evil from our lives. He averts an equal amount of evil from our lives. This hadith is referring to when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually accepts the dua. The first hadith in terms of timings are the timings that, uh, you know, if you fall under that time, then you have fulfilled one of the conditions of dua being accepted. So this is when it gets accepted and this is how to get it accepted. That's the difference. So not every dua is going to be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is why you'll notice um, that the person who repents when the sun, you know, is rising from the west, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala won't accept it at that time. The person who repents when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking their soul away, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to accept it at that time. So a person has to fulfill all of the conditions first and then the du'as will be accepted. I can't remember which halaqa I did this in. But we took that famous quote of uh, Ibrahim ibn Adham, uh, rahimahullah, where we discussed, actually I didn't do it here in Calgary, I'm confused. I did this in Montreal. This quote of Ibrahim ibn Adham, inshallah, we'll share it in, a, in another halaqa, where he mentions eight things. Where he says, you accept the Qur'an, but you don't follow it. You take the Messenger of Allah, but you don't follow it. You talk about death, but you don't fear it. And he mentions these eight conditions. So after all of these things, how do you accept Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Sorry, how do you expect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to answer your du'as? Another hadith the Prophet mentions, the man who ate haram, the man who wore haram, the man whose earnings were haram, the man whose spendings were haram. The Messenger of Allah said, then how will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer the dua of this individual? So you have to meet all of the conditions first before the dua can actually be accepted. So if you meet all of the conditions, then your dua ta'ala is guaranteed to be accepted in one of those three ways. And that's how you reconcile the two hadith. I love that question, very good question. Question number two. Next question, go ahead. We are uh, from Indian subcontinent. Yes. Uh, every time when we um, talk to like my elders, like my father, mothers, or any mothers, at the end we generally tell uh, like, make love for me. Yes. Could you please explain whether it is the right ones or the mistake? Ahsan, Jazakallah So the brother is saying that in the Indian subcontinent culture, when they part from their gatherings, they'll tell the people, please remember me in your du'as. And the answer to this is that this is something that is discouraged to do. It should not be done. Because there had there been any goodness in this, when the companions عنهم, would have parted in their gatherings, they would have told Abu Bakr, remember me in your du'as. They would have told Umar, remember me in your du'as. Now obviously us compared to Abu Bakr and Umar are nothing. So if the companions didn't say it to the likes of Abu Bakr and Umar, then who are the people to say it to the likes of us? So generally speaking, this concept of asking other people to make dua for you, they should only be said to the people that are truly righteous. Meaning that these are the people that are constantly coming to the masjid, the people that abide by the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the people that stay away from riba and zina, you know, their hearts are attached to the masjid, they're always giving sadaqah, they have amazing akhlaq, you know, they're callers of tawheed, that they're always calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the type of people that you want to tell them, you know, remember me in your du'as, or make du'a for this, and then it will be accepted. In all other cases and scenarios, you are better off making du'a by yourself. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in the Qur'an, That if my slave asks uh, about me, tell my slave that I am near, I answer all the du'as of the one who supplicates to me. 
So that is what we should do. That rather than asking everyone to make dua for us, we should make dua ourselves, and that is the better thing to do. Good question. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Question number three, go ahead. You're gonna have to raise your voice, I can't hear you. Or come forward actually. So they all made dua individually first. They made dua individually. They said, Oh Allah, I did this and this for your sake. So please help us out in this situation. So they made dua individually and they told Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about their deeds. And that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helped them to escape from the cave. They, they could have done that, but the point of this hadith is to teach us something. And that is that when you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you're in a severe situation, meaning that no one can help you accept Allah, then in those times you should ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by your righteous deeds. So you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by the good deeds that you did to help you out in your darkest times, in your darkest moments, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you out in those situations. Make sense? Excellent. Question number four. Go ahead. is given a scripture. Wallahu ta'ala alam. So the brother's question, is it true that the difference between a prophet and a messenger is that the prophet, uh, sorry, the messenger is given a scripture? And the answer to that is Allahu alam, I don't know. That possibly could be one of the things, but I don't know, um, you know, if that makes a difference. Because in reality, what is a scripture? It is just writing down a revelation, right? So both prophets and messengers are giving revelation. So now you're saying that the difference would be that one wrote the revelation down and the other one didn't? <laughs> right, but I'm saying that you, I mean, I understand the concept. So it'd just be writing it down. And I don't think that would be a major difference. You know, whether one group wrote it down or didn't, I don't think it would be a difference. Wallahu ta'ala Added to this point, you know, we were told of the um, major revelations that were sent down. So we know that the Quran was given to the Prophet ﷺ, the Zabur was given to Dawud, the Torah given to Musa, the Injil given to Isa. Then we have the Suhaf of Ibrahim and Musa as well. These are the major uh, you know, scriptures that we refer to. But here the Messenger of Allah ﷺ also tells us that the first Rasul was Nuh ﷺ. And we, there's no mention of any scripture that was actually given to Nuh. So Allah ﷻ knows best. It's possible, but I don't know. Allahu Ta'ala. Question number four, last question of the evening. Go ahead. Is it true that the du'as that are mentioned in the Quran are going to be more accepted? The acceptance of du'a is based upon the individual and not what he is actually saying, right? It is more upon the individual than rather what he is actually saying. So what is more important is you look at the etiquettes of making dua rather than looking at what you are saying. But what I, can, what I can say about your question is that the duas that are mentioned in the Quran, Allah mentioned them in the Quran because there's something special about them. There's something special about them and that is why they should be said. So the duas in the Quran are definitely more preferable than the duas that we will make for ourselves. But at the same time, 
there are certain instances that will not be mentioned in the Quran. So for example, you know, your mother is extremely sick. You know, the Quran will not tell us what dua to make at that time. So you can make your own dua. So if you're in a situation where you can use a Quranic dua or your own dua, it is better to use the Quranic dua. However, if you're in a situation where there is no Quranic dua, then you can make up your own dua at that time. Wallahu ta'ala. Good question. The last thing I guess I'll uh, conclude with is that um, I wanted to mention this in the beginning, but it slipped my mind. Then we were talking about guidance and how precious guidance was and how guidance is a blessing from Allah and a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you look at Iblis, you know Iblis was from the most righteous of the jinn and that is why he was in the company of the Malaika. If you look at Iblis, he knew how to address Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, Rabbi anvirni ala yu He knew how to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you look at the company of, J of Iblis, he was in the company of the Malaika and in the company of Adam alayhi salam. Yet all of this was taken away from him by him making one mistake. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put him in a situation where he had to make a choice. Either to bow down to Adam or to not bow down to Adam. And by choosing the path of misguidance in just one situation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took guidance away altogether from Iblis. And if it can happen to someone like Iblis, that was in the company of the angels, in the company of the prophets, you know, view, saw revelation, saw the prophets, saw everything that would happen, and even then uh, guidance can be taken away from him, it shows you that we even us as human beings are more susceptible to losing guidance. So you have to make sure you hold on to the best of your ability. That hold on to your guidance. That whenever you're given that choice, either to follow a path of guidance or to follow a path of misguidance, remember the story of Iblis. That remember that through making that bad decision, through making that bad choice, it is very possible you could follow and go down that exact same line. And that is something you want to avoid. May Allah protect us all. So keep that in mind. And that is why it is so important to keep making this dua. That oh Allah, until the day we die, guiding us to the straight path. And uh, the lesson we learn from this as well is that the reason why we keep mentioning this 17 times a day is because this path of guidance is not black and white. It's not that, hey, I became Muslim, I'm guided. No, it's not black and white. But rather, guidance is a lifelong journey. Till the day you die, you will need to learn how to do things, how to speak to people, how to go to the bathroom, how to eat, how to, you know, what are the things that you can do to benefit the dead. All of these things come from guidance. So when you ask Allah, this is what you're asking for. That, oh Allah, keep guiding me to the best of my dunya and the best of my akhirah. And may Allah accept it from all of us. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.